Okay, good morning. Good to have you guys all here. I'm excited to um, dig into what we're going to talk about today as we're continuing our um, study of worship, Lutheran worship, and kind of walking through the order of service and, and talking about what it has to teach us, what, um, what all is embedded in the, the truths that we speak each and every week. And today we're going to talk about the Word of God, uh, the Word of God as we receive it in the Scriptures, the Word of God as we hear it in the sermon and that's kind of going to be our, our goal and our focus for today. But as we get started, I want to ask a, a question for you guys to um, discuss amongst yourselves for a moment. What sort of voices in our society are the most influential? What are some of the voices in, in society right now that are the most influential? The ones that, you know, for better or for worse, tend to have the most pull, the largest voice in, in our culture. Talk about that at your tables for uh, for just a moment, and then we'll chat chat about it. Some of the, the most influential and some of the loudest voices in our society today. What what comes to mind? News media. News media. Yeah. I mean, it's we were saying at our table. It used to be maybe you get a newspaper and you can kind of read it, take it or leave it, put it in the recycle bin. But now it's just constant, all over the place. Good. What else? Other voices that are social media. Social media. Right. We're now. Everybody has something that you all have to hear, right? And uh, it's, it's out there, and it can be just as, just as loud as anyone else. Good. Other voices that are especially influential? Commercialism. Commercialism. Advertising. So all over the place. One of the things I love about up here is you're hard-pressed. We went downstate, as I say yesterday, or the last couple of days, and good golly, you're like, you're just overwhelmed with all of the billboards and everything and I just appreciate you know come back up here it's like okay I can breathe because I'm not just being constantly bombarded with that so good other things the Pope people do quite often still sure. the Pope says something yeah that's right I stole that from Lily no yeah but <laughs> the Pope sneezes and uh, oh what, what what kind of sneeze was it you know did he bless himself after he sneezed so just 
That's something that I always enjoy when I'm wearing the collar and I'm at like the hospital or something and I happen to sneeze. People will be like, oh, blah. Mm. May I bless the holy man? Yes, I need your blessing too. Thank you. So, good. Yeah, any, any other ones? Along with the Pope, I guess the royalty. Sure, yeah, right. Or at least the National Enquirer and their stories about royalty. Um, I mean, celebrities, right? Uh, celebrity voices um, are constantly being heard. They tend to weigh in on things that they don't know anything about. Like, don't you get paid to play sports or to be in movies and not to be like a, a social commentator? There's so many voices out there in our culture right now uh, that are loud, that they're influential, some of them for the good, many of them not so much. But the uh, word of God has the last word. The word of God is the voice that we most need to be listening to. And so it should not surprise us that in the liturgy, in our worship, the word of God is woven throughout the entire thing. Every part of the service ultimately can be traced back to the word, either just explicit quotations from the word or allusions um, to it and kind of paraphrases of it. So the word of God is everything about it. And uh, it's going to go well. I think our study here complements well the um, theme of the sermon and the service today. Um, As we say, number two on your handout, the word of God comes in manifold forms, at least in three forms which we also receive in the service. So first, the written word of Holy Scripture. Second, the incarnate word of Christ Jesus. And third, the proclaimed word of the sermon. So, so when we think about the word of God, it comes in at least these three forms. The incarnate word equals Jesus. The written word this is so much better than the blackboard, isn't it? You don't, yes. Like, I mean, nothing. And then, uh, so you're incarnate, written, and then finally, we'll call the proclaimed word of the sermon. So they're all forms of the word of God. Um, each of these are important, of course. Jesus himself is the most important. But um, we're going to kind of uh, walk, walk through here and talk about each of these forms of, of the word of God in turn and the way that they manifest themselves in the order of uh, worship, in the service itself. Okay, so number three on your hand up. Holy Scripture is the script of God's drama. Holy Scripture is the script of God's drama. What do I mean by that? I mean that um, in Holy Scripture, now we have not only a... Um, a history book, but of here's things that happened a long time ago. But it's also a word that is living and active. It's a word that continues to be uttered and um, lived into by the people of God. It's our, our script for how we live. And it tells us the story that we are a part of. You think about it, Genesis is in the beginning, and then Revelation is in the end. And we live in between, right? We live, uh, one author by the name of N.T. Wright has kind of described history as like a play with five acts. And the first act is creation, okay? Then the second act is the fall, okay? Then the the third act would be like Old Testament, people of Israel, and all that history. 
The fourth and climactic act is uh, Christ, Jesus. That's, uh, I use that symbol sometimes for Jesus. It's a short form of the Cairo. This is the Greek word for Jesus, or Christos, um, Christ. And so when you see this sign, it looks like an X and a P. Those are the first two letters of Christ in Greek. We call it the Cairo. So just a little shorthand there. So that's the, the climactic scene of the story. But it's not over yet. The, the fifth and final act that we're awaiting is the new creation, the return of Christ and the new creation. So in between fourth and fifth is where we live here. You know, like when you're looking at the map, you are here. And uh, in between there, where we live now, we live according to that script of Holy Scripture. Seeking to uh, follow um, God's words and ways and his will for us. And so it's read each and every week. Um, so within the scripture itself, it refers to this and um, you know, points up the, the, this practice of reading the scripture in worship. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Again, Colossians 4.16, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. It's an important verse. It tells us that these letters of Paul were understood already. Paul himself understood that they served a, a formative and authoritative role for the churches. Circulate these letters. Okay, This wasn't just a private letter, but it was a public letter that would have been read aloud. And then in Revelation, verse three, chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, why would this have been important historically, originally? Why would it have been so important for um, the scripture to be read as part of worship? So let's think through some a little bit and think about what you, what you might know about the culture and the history of the time. Why would it be important for the scripture to be read? Yeah, Esther. A lot of people couldn't read or write, and, uh, yes. and, and, and even the ones who could couldn't afford to get uh, scripture. Very good. Few. So Esther points out that it, at that time, a lot of people could not read and write. Um, the estimates of social scientists and scholars suggest that maybe it was something like 4% could um, read the scriptures on their own. Yeah, Court. A fact that, that kind of surprised me uh -huh. was... Luther said that the only Bible that he had ever seen was the one they had in the library mm. because nobody had the Bible. Right. So um, the court's alluding to the fact that even by the time of the Reformation, it was not the case that everybody had their own Bible and that even if they had one, it was not going to be in their vernacular language. In other words, kind of their heart language. That if they had one, it was going to be in Latin, which most of the common people could not read. Okay. So both of those things were true back from the beginning that folks couldn't read. And so even if they had a Bible, they wouldn't be able to read it by themselves. Um, but also, as Esther says, this uh, was not something that everyone had. And in fact, um, originally, it wasn't in the form of what we have today, where it's a nice handy book, you know, or if the Gideons come by, they give you one of those tiny ones you can put in your back pocket. Do you know what form it would have been in, at least originally? scrolls, okay? Great big scrolls. Um, this was the, the practice of the Jews before the time of Christ. These great big scrolls, and that's why it says in a, a passage that we'll look at in a little bit here, 
um, from Luke 4, Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So you're not going to have a room in your house with all these piles of scrolls that you're going to undo. Now, as it happens, um, early Christians were um, at the forefront of kind of printing technology. Of course, we think of the printing press, but even before that, of using papyrus, you know, forerunner to modern paper, and then forming what's called the codex, which is basically a book like we have it, so that they would be able to transport it in the word of God. But it was really important that the scripture be read as part of worship because God's people might not be hearing it, receiving it anywhere else. They couldn't just go home and open up their Bible and have kind of personal devotional time. They needed to hear it in the public assembly. So this was a practice from the very earliest days of, of the church, that the scripture would be read aloud. Now, number four on your handout says, through holy scripture, God still speaks. Just reflect for a minute on this statement that we make every time scriptures are read in, the, in worship. It's very simple, but very illuminating. You know, the reader concludes and says, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That here, this is God's word to us that we're able to hear now in the present moment. And people will, will say sometimes, you know, do you hear God speaking? And my answer is yes, but maybe not in the way that you think, right? Um, what folks say when they're asking that, they usually mean, do you hear an audible voice? Now, I'm not going to say that God doesn't communicate by those means. I think he can and, and that he does, or by dreams or what have you. But the fundamental and foundational way that God speaks is through scripture. And if you were to hear some message that you thought was from the Lord and it ran directly contrary to what the scripture says, then you want to call that into question, right? You want to say, ah, I'm not so certain about that. For example, a man that I heard about who um, what he had heard word from the Lord, the Lord is telling me I need to divorce my wife. You know, she is not a real genuine Christian. I need to get rid of her and say, well, wait a second, how does that square with what the scripture actually teaches? Or it even says, even if you happen to have a, an unbelieving wife, you don't send her away, right? Or if you, you question her faith, sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Right? Hold, hold fast to her. Um, and by, at any rate, do not blame it on God if you decide you know, there has to be a divorce. You don't say, well, God told me that I have to um, get rid of you, turn you away. Um, so when we say that God still speaks, he speaks through his word, speaks through the scripture. Um, think of uh, Jesus with the walkers on the Emmaus road in Luke 24. And you remember this story? They don't even recognize that it's Jesus and they're walking along, going along the way. And then he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And again, in John 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 5. To hear those scriptures, and there's others like them, the Bible is a big book. But ultimately, what or who is it all about? It's about Jesus. And we say, well, yeah, we know that the New Testament is about Jesus and the Gospels and the letters, but what Jesus um, taught them that in all, from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, was he talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament? He was talking about the Old Testament, right? They didn't have the New Testament. Exactly. All of Scripture points to Christ. So whether it be your Old Testament or your New Testament, it all points to Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, it's in an anticipatory kind of way. The promises of, of the coming Christ, and in a um, foreshadowing way. You guys know what foreshadowing is? Or, or the technical term we use is typology, which is where there are pictures or anticipations of Christ in the Old Testament. Can anybody think of one uh, might be an instance of that kind of foreshadowing or typology from the Old Testament, something that points to Christ? Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac, okay, where um, God says to Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, so that, that becomes a kind of anticipation. But then, you know, God spares Isaac and Abraham, for that matter, um, and sends them a ram. Good. Another example of that kind of foreshadowing or the fall. typology? Say more about that. When uh, he said he will bruise your heel. And good. Or he will bruise his heel. Yeah. So, good. So there's kind of two different um, ways that we're talking about that the Old Testament points forward. So one is typology where it's sort of a foreshadowing or uh, an anticipation of a part of the story that will come later. And that with Esther, like with uh, saying with Abraham and Isaac. Yeah. But there's also um, just direct promises. Okay? Promises. And Genesis 3.15 would be a case in point, which is what Leslie was alluding to. When God says to um, uh, Adam and Eve and to the serpent, he will bruise, uh, you will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Um, talking about the, a future promise of Christ. So in both of these ways, the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. So that, when we gather together in worship, we don't just hear from the New Testament, but we hear from the Old Testament as well. Because all of it is marshaled together to deliver to us Jesus, to point us to Christ. Okay. Questions about that? So, um, a word, too, just on what we call the lectionary. Lectionary. Um, so, in uh, Lutheran churches, in Catholic churches, in um, Episcopalian or Anglican churches, um, many different denominations will follow what's called a lectionary. And a lectionary is a pattern of readings appointed for each Sunday and festival day of the church year. So each time we gather together, there are readings that have been selected that are already um, 
kind of assigned for the Sunday. Today is 19th Sunday after Pentecost, and the readings of Genesis 32, 2 Timothy 3, and Luke 18. I didn't choose those. Those were already given to us through the lectionary. That's not to say that sometimes we, we can't or should. Say it again. Are they, they different every year? Okay, um, Ted asks a good question. Are they different every year? So there's two different lectionaries that are used uh, within our churches. So one is a, a one-year lectionary where um, the, it's just a one-year cycle, and you hear those same readings on those Sundays each and every year. And then the other lectionary which we've been using is the three-year lectionary, where it's on a three-year cycle. Um, so you're hearing them over and over and over again. Now the lectionary, whether it be the one-year or the three-year, does not cover the whole Bible. Okay? Um, I think at the most with the three-year lectionary, it covers maybe about, uh, if my memory serves me, around like 15%. So if you only come to church and hear the scripture, you're not going to hear every word of the Bible. But that's not, that's okay. You know, you're not here to get every last jot and tittle. Now we're fortunate to have scriptures of our own. We can um, read on our own as well. Yeah, Ann. I'm worried this will get us too much in the weeds, so you can mm. say. But who okay. gave us these lectionaries? Oh, okay. Who went through and said, these readings go together? Because they do. Yes, in right. Unexpected ways, a lot of times. That's a, a great point. Um, in felicitous ways, we might say. Um, so, Anne's question: Who gave us the lectionary, or you know, where did it come from? And it's easier to answer in the case of the three-year. Um, in the case of the one-year lectionary, they it emerged pretty organically over the over the centuries, really. So that by the time of Luther, it was fixed. It wasn't just one person or one committee. But um, there just gradually came to be a consensus, different Sundays of the church year. And it started out with Easter. And then it built out to Epiphany. Interestingly, they, Epiphany was a bigger deal than Christmas originally. Now Epiphany, we don't tend to make a big deal out of that in Christmas. <coughs> but um, then Pentecost and so on and so forth. And then finally it, it went to every Sunday of the church year. But kind of like with the Apostles' Creed, we don't know. There wasn't one person that did it. It just kind of organically came together. In the case of the three-year lectionary, um, that came together as a result after Vatican II, the Roman Catholic uh, Council in the 60s. Um, they, one of their movements was to develop a three-year lectionary so that there would be a wider selection of scriptures for the people of God. And then it was um, slightly revised and uh, updated and adjusted um, by other Protestant church bodies as well into what was called the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, but, I mean, to your, to your question, if, in those cases, it was, you know, committees looking at especially the gospel of the day and then trying to find Old Testament readings that would correspond well to the, the gospel reading. And many times the epistle reading, um, uh, if it relates, it relates only in a tangential way. And we tend to go through an, in series in the epistle readings. So, good question. Other questions about the lectionary or curiosities about that? Okay, so, but we do that because it's an ordered way that we can get a good diet and a good representative sample of the whole of Scripture. Because if you don't have a lectionary, I mean, think about what could be some of the dangers or the challenges if you don't have a lectionary. Um, that's, yeah, ma'am. Don't take this the wrong way. Okay. I have wondered if in the past it was kind of like, church hierarchy, 
trying to make sure that as this filters down to maybe pastors of newer, mm -hmm. you know, stature or whatever, that it's kind of this protection. We know we'll at least have like the yes. standard you yes. know, that they can follow. Right. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So Matt's saying, you know, especially for younger pastors, we want to make sure, because what might, uh, we'll just go with younger pastors. What that might they be tempted to do or to preach from when you're getting started? You're going to look for the most difficult passages and those, you know, you think of the, the parable from a few weeks ago of the unjust steward, you know, the, uh, no, of course not. You know, a new pastor, he's going to preach from the book of Romans and that's basically it, right? <laughs> like, let's just keep it easy and simple. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the Book of Romans is great. But the lectionary helps to force, it kind of forces us as preachers to, hey, you can't just go to your, your favorite passages, right? You've got to go to scriptures that you might otherwise ignore or neglect. And so churches that don't use a lectionary, it's not that they're necessarily going to um, be that way, but I think it's more of a challenge um, because we all have our blind spots, right? Yeah, yeah. Like the the food pyramid, right? Okay. You're supposed to get like a really good, oh, good. portion of grains. Right. Fats and sweets at the bottom, right? And then where does right. it go from there? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to have a talk later. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably where all problems yeah. come from. Right. I'm just joking. No, but yeah, no, but that's you good. Need, you need, you know, you need your your basic foundational stuff. Yeah. Because if you just get like if the you, passages that are like if you just preach from James and Proverbs all the time, yeah. Then people will not be getting the stuff that they need. Sure. Or there's churches that that you'd be in Revelation every week, oh, right? right. It's like okay, no, Revelation is the sweets and uh, fats at the top. See, <laughs> down here the Gospels. That's your. You know, that's your, what is it, the bottom? Bread Vegetables? Butter. Bread? I don't no, know. Grains. Meat and potatoes? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Matt, do you have your hand up? No, we're just, totally mixing metaphors. Yeah, sorry. I think that it perhaps helps avoid, too, a tendency to chase the issues of the day. Totally, Whatever yes. going on at the church. Yep. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. So Matt's saying, you know, lectionary helps to avoid just chasing the issues of the day. You know, so for example, if I went through, I was like, I wonder if there's any passages that talk about bells. <laughs> That'll be the reading for, you know. Um, but instead, you're, it, it's, it's a check, you know. Yeah. Well, and I've known people who go to churches where um, they're like so New Testament. And the New Testament is very right, nice. of course. But you don't realize how sweet the New Testament is yes. if you don't know the Old Testament and yeah, what well we put. were saved from. That's right. And I know people who were very strong Christians who are like, "Did you know that in the Old Testament?" Like, <laughs> yes, I did. But they, after twenty years of church, yeah. had finally heard right some of the Old Testament stuff because they didn't have this going through yeah. periodically. Yep, that's a great point. Um, it's easy to kind of skirt past the Old Testament, or we're New Testament people, we're Christian people, but all of it is, mm -hmm. is Scripture. And as we heard in the epistle reading today, and we'll, we'll turn to this passage later, when Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, again, he has in mind especially what we call the Old Testament. Yeah, Leslie. I had heard once of a pastor who never prepared a sermon because God would give him the words and tell him what to say. Mm. Well, if you don't have a lectionary to follow, even in that case, you know, okay, I'm going to get up there and, OK, 
Let's see what, yep, right. See if the muse is, is with us today. So um, that actually, that's a tradition um, with, within the church. So Quakers, especially in some uh, Pentecostal churches, um, would say, hey, did not Jesus say that don't think beforehand about what you're going to say, but the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Well, this was a Lutheran. Well, this was a Lutheran. <laughs> I have no excuse for this guy. But, but, um, no. Uh, we you want to, to repair beforehand and then be open to the working of the Spirit too, right? It's not an either, either or kind of thing. But, all right, thus on the lectionary. Lectionary provides us that kind of ordered pattern of readings year by year, whether it's a yearly cycle or a three-year cycle, delivering us um, the Word of God, the written Word of God. All right, number five on your handout. As we go through the service, after we hear the Old Testament reading and the epistle reading, we do what? We stand up, right? Alleluia, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Alleluia, alleluia. Why do we stand for the gospel and not stand for the Old Testament in the epistle? It's all the word of God, right? So why stand for the gospel but not for the other readings? Christ's word. Okay, it's Christ's word. And so say more about that. What? What? So, uh, the rest of he's like, no, that's all I got. Okay, so it's, it's Christ's word. So there's something about hearing the very words of the Savior. It's not that the other parts aren't word of God or are less valuable, but it's like now we are right in the, the presence of the king. See, I tell the story when I was overseas in Thailand and I went to the movie theater and... Uh, the movies work just like movies do here. You know, they tell you it's going to start at such and such time, but it doesn't really start at such and such time. The previews start at that time. So I get there, I meet my popcorn, watching the previews, and then all of a sudden, everybody stands up. And I'm like, did I miss something here? And then a, uh, a, a video starts showing of kind of the, the exploits and the good deeds of the king. See, um, Thailand is a, a constitutional monarchy. Um, they have a, a, a king. And so it's just a video of the king doing good deeds, you know, showering his benevolence on, on folks, this sort of thing. But it was out of respect for the presence of the king, the people all stood up. Well, it was a pretty beautiful thing. And then said, turn your cell phones off and be seated. The king said that? No, <laughs> that's right, at the end. Turn your phones off. No. Um, but this is kind of the idea. In, in the service, now we're hearing the very words of our king in his presence. We stand up. We want to honor him. And uh, along with that, as I say, we stand for Christ and we stand with Christ. Um, the, the, those words that we sing there come from John chapter 6, where it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So for us to um, stand up for the reading of the gospel is kind of like that old hymn, you know, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Am I doing the tune right? Sure. sure. Yeah. Thank you. Give me the benefit of the doubt. And so it's, we are standing for Christ, standing for his presence, but also standing with him and saying, hey, I'm with Jesus. 
as the disciples said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. All these other voices out there in the world, they do not offer eternal life. Dr. Phil, wise as he may be, does not offer eternal life, right? Um, all of these different voices, they are not the source of life, but you and you alone, Jesus. And so we stand to hear your word. Okay. Um, just a, a side note with that, there is a time of the year when we don't say that. We still stand for the gospel, but we don't sing that. What, and anybody know what, when that is? What? In Lent. In Lent, right. Because our alleluias um, drop out during the season of Lent. And so instead of singing alleluia, we uh, typically sing from Joel chapter 2. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. And so on. All right. So thus far, we have spoken of number two here, the word of God as the written word of God, Holy Scripture. But I want to um, go to, number one I have on here, but the incarnate word of God, that Jesus himself. So number six in your handout, the Holy Gospel delivers the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus. You know, so I would say the Holy Gospel according to so-and-so, chapter such-and-such. Glory to you, O Lord. This ultimately is why we stand, because we're in the presence of the incarnate God. This goes back to this idea of Jesus as the word of God, um, especially comes from John chapter 1, um, which I have printed for you here. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we talk about Jesus as the word of God, he is the, the logos. That's the Greek word for it there, which looks familiar, from which we get logo and other things. But um, Jesus is the logos. The word of God. But that uh, term that John uses here to describe Jesus has even a richer resonance. Word doesn't fully capture it. For the Greeks, they had this idea that the logos, the logos was the, the ordering principle of the universe. That the logos was what held everything together. And that at the, at the foundation of creation, that it made sense. That it was intelligible. That it was rational that we could do experiments and learn things about the world, that there was a logos, a wisdom or reason or word undergirding everything. See? And then John comes along and he says, that logos is to be identified as Jesus Christ. As Paul will write in Colossians, um, he is the one in whom all things hold together and for whom they exist. Or as uh, John had written it here, he says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Gives light to everyone. Um, I often uh, quote C.S. Lewis in this regard, where C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Jesus for the same reason that I believe in the risen sun. Not because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. Not because I can see it. Some days there's cloudy days. You can't see the sun. You don't know. Oh, I can't tell if it's up there. But you know that it is because by it, you can see everything else. 
So also, when it comes to our Lord Jesus, we know that he is the risen son because in the light of his death and his resurrection, now that makes sense of all the rest of life. See, It gives intelligibility to everything in life, that we as people are, are sinful, broken people, but that ultimately we have a good and kindly Savior who is reconciling all things. All right, so Jesus is the Word of God, the incarnate Word. And that's really the foundation, foundational truth for all other understandings of the Word, that who Jesus is as the Word of God. Yeah. Are there any Old Testament kind of foreshadowings that mm. Jesus is this Word guy? Yes. Thank you, my dear. I love when you ask questions, good questions. So, all right, Anne asked, was there any Old Testament foreshadowings of the Word of God? So... One of my favorite example is St. Augustine would say, the entire Trinity is there in the first three verses of Genesis. Lily, you remember we talked about this? The, um, the first three verses of Genesis. So go to Genesis chapter 1. People will say, um, you know, uh, critics or skeptics of Christianity will say, well, you, Christians believe in the Trinity, and the word Trinity doesn't even show up in the Bible. True. And we don't even see this idea of, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you just made that up. Not true. Okay. Trinity is a word that later theologians used and coined to describe what is reflected and, and taught in the scriptures themselves. The word Trinity had to be um, invented, in order, it had to be coined to make sense of what the scriptures teach and show. So St. Augustine would say, already at the very beginning, in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, you have the Trinity. Let me just read this, and let's see if you guys can... Puzzle together what he's saying. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. All right, so it starts out easy enough. You know, where, where's the Father in there? doesn't say the Father, but... God, okay? So God created. When, and when Scripture just speaks of, of God um, that way, just, you know, absolutely, we usually have in mind the Father. Okay, so God created. Spirit of God. Verse 2 says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay? Spirit is hovering. And the uh, word that's used there, interestingly, is the same word that's used elsewhere of birds particular doves and the ways that they might hover. Now, what does that make you think of? Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit came down like a dove. The baptismal um, uh, accounts in the Gospels are really just a riff on the creation account, see? As the Holy Spirit once came down and hovered over the face of the waters, so again, at the Lord's baptism, now the, the Spirit is coming down, which tells us that in and through Jesus Christ, what we have is a new creation story that's taking place. See, God once created, now he's recreating through Jesus. And John picks up on this also in John chapter 1, right? Because John starts his gospel by saying what? In the beginning was the Word. Okay, but where is that, John? You say in the beginning was the Word. Where do you see that in verse 3? It doesn't say the Word was there, was with God. The word. What's that? The light. Oh, exactly. God said, the word speaks. Thus, you have the scriptures talking about how um, 
Through Jesus, all things came to be. How is that? Because he's the word. He's the instrument of creation. Okay? And uh, just to give further evidence for Augustine's point, which I think is just brilliant and spot on, um, Psalm 33 says, let's see, what verse is it? Um, Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Oh, okay, so the word of the Lord, Jesus, boom, logos, right there. But then where's the spirit? Look at it. By the word of the Lord, and then by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Okay? If, remember, we've talked about this before. You have that great Hebrew word for breath. Ruach. Let's hear it. Ruach. Okay? Ruach can mean breath, wind, or, boom, spirit. See? And in fact, in the uh, Greek translations of this verse, the Septuagint translates it as the pneuma, pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. That's the word translated as spirit in the New Testament. And how cool is this? In the Psalms, we've talked before about Hebrew poetry. It does this parallelism. So it'll say something, and then in the second half of the verse, it'll say something else, which is roughly synonymous, but they'll say it in slightly different words. Uh, it's, it's a feature of Hebrew poetry. So think about how the theology is woven into the grammar here by saying, the word by the word of the Lord... Where am I? Uh, the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. It's a grammatical way of showing the theological equivalence between the Spirit and the Son. Along with the Father, Trinity, Psalm 33, Genesis 1. I rest my case. <laughs> Thanks, Anne, for that question. Couple of more, couple more comments here about the sermon. Okay, so number seven on, on your handout. The sermon delivers the proclaimed word of God. Okay, so we've talked about the incarnate word, the written word. But then you have this third piece. The sermon delivers the proclaimed word of God. One of the um, hints that this is what we believe about it comes right at what I typically say when I'm introducing at the beginning of it. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that sound a little bit like? Think about, think about your Bibles and in, in New Testament. This is, this is how you hear a lot of the epistles start, right? Well, Paul's writing begins by saying, grace to you and peace, grace, mercy, and peace, etc., etc. That's not to say that the sermon is on par with an epistle, okay? But it is to say that the, the sermon, the preaching, is meant to be the word of God proclaimed now for the people of God. You get at this with Luke 4. I uh, alluded to this before. So Jesus comes to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, receives the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he unrolls it, and he finds from Isaiah 61. Okay? He reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, etc. Christ means the anointed one. Then it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Very short sermon. Right, straight into the point, right? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the job of the sermon is to point how scripture has been fulfilled in Christ and to apply that word to God's people, to give them that good news. Luke 10 says, the one who hears you 
hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So that the, the preacher and the sermon are meant to be the mouthpiece of God. Now don't, um, I, I don't want that to sound like that's crazy or too, um, too high, highfalutin or what have you. Um, the idea is just that God speaks through his word and his word is expounded and proclaimed by the preacher. To the extent that it doesn't line up with scripture, you say, uh, excuse me, preacher man, like, let's take a look again at the written word of God. So it's not that the, the sermon of the preacher is able to uh, make new teachings that aren't taught in the scripture, but it's expounding and applying what's already taught in the written word of God, which is itself you know, the extension of the incarnate word, our Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, that's kind of a mouthful, but that's, that's the idea. Uh, couple, two last thoughts I want to leave you with. Number eight says, the church is a mooned house, not a fader house. Um, this, this was a, a comment of, of Luther. And you <laughs> translate. Mouth and feather? Yes, or a, like a quill pen was, was the idea. So Luther would say, the church is a mouth house, not, it's usually translated as a penthouse. Not a penthouse, mind you. Um, <laughs> a penthouse. And what he's saying is, the church is a place where the word of God is proclaimed. It's not a place just for writing. It's a place for proclaiming. And within the New Testament itself, it speaks of this. You know, Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So, the church is a mouth house. It's for the word of God proclaimed. The good news of Christ continually recited, rehearsed, and received. Finally, last point. Just to to wrap it up, to summarize it. All forms of the word of God are efficacious for God's people. Okay? So, while the incarnate word, Jesus, is of course the foundational one, the written word and the proclaimed word also bring his good news to bear on us. So, you know, 2 Timothy 3, we heard today, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that written word of God. Ephesians 5 speaks of holy baptism, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's a good definition of baptism. And then from our um, book of Concord, or Confessions, the small called Articles. Luther himself wrote this. He says, we'll now return to the gospel which not merely in one way gives us counsel and aid against sin, for God is superabundantly rich and liberal in his grace and goodness. God is so superabundant in his grace that he gives us the incarnate word, our Lord Jesus, the written word of the scriptures and the proclaimed word of the sermon, and indeed the visible words of uh, the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ultimately the word tied to visible means, water, wine and bread, um, they are not to be divorced from the word, but understood as a visual word. All right, I've given you a lot today about the word of God. Uh, If you have any questions or follow-up, we can talk about it more next week. But thank you, as always, for your attention and your participation. See you then.